Hi there, I'm Caitlin Soule, and I'm an author, I'm a therapist, I'm a mom to three kids, and I'm also a bit of a hot mess human. I know you don't have a ton of time, so I want to dive right into topics each week that matter the most to you. Listen in as I fly solo and bring on some amazing guests to have conversations intended to help modern women say yes to their own imperfect personal growth and evolution. We'll talk honestly about all the things that matter the most to us, like motherhood, career, relationships, overcoming anxiety, intimacy, so we can steer towards a life led by our values instead of our fear. Cheers. Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast episode with me, Caitlin Soule, the host, and I'm so excited to get to share this conversation that I had with two of my favorite activists, authors, and just general, <laughs> in general humans. Um, I have had the pleasure of being connected with Sarah Blanchard and Misasha Graham throughout my writing journey. Sarah and Misasha wrote the book, Dear White Women, and they're also co-hosts of the wonderful podcast, Dear White Women. A graduate of Harvard College and Columbia Law School, Misasha Suzuki Graham has been a practicing litigator for over 15 years. She's passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession, as well as in her communities. She's a facilitator, writer, and speaker regarding issues of racial justice, especially with regards to children, the co-author of Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, and the co-host of Dear White Women, a social justice podcast. Misasha, who is biracial, Japanese and white, is married to a black man and is the proud mom of two very active multiracial young boys. They live in the Bay Area of California with their largely indifferent cat. I love that part. Sarah Blanchard helps build community and connection through conscious conversations, which she does as a facilitator, TEDx speaker, writer, and consultant. After graduating also from Harvard and working at Goldman Sachs, Sarah pursued the science and techniques of well-being and is a certified life coach, author of two books, Flex Mom and Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable About Talking About Racism, also the co-host of Dear White Women, and she is a biracial woman, Japanese and white, married to a white Canadian man, and is raising their two white presenting girls to be compassionate, thoughtful advocates. They live in Denver, Colorado with their incredibly lovable dog. I wanted to share their official bios because I think it really gives you a picture of who they are, how much they're involved in, and how conscious they are in talking about the topic of race and social justice and how they've weaved it in as a part of not just their work, but a part of their life, because it is, right? And so this conversation that I had with Misasha and Sarah was incredibly insightful. I always learn so much when I talk with them. I've learned so much from their book and their podcast. And if anything, I walked away from this conversation recognizing even further the importance of an open mind and an open heart and talking about uncomfortable things and listening and learning and changing the narrative. And so I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. I really want you guys to follow up um, if you're, you know, wanting to expand this work, I want you to follow up by getting their book, Dear White Women. It really is incredible. And they'll tell the story in this podcast interview about why they named it that because it is, you know, it was a name that made a lot of waves and was a little bit controversial. Um, it grabbed people's attention and they have a wonderful 
story around how they decided to name it that. Um, but the book is incredible. It's a great resource and their podcast, Dear White Women as well. So tune in and I can't wait to hear what you guys think about this episode. Cheers. Hi friends, I just wanted to take a quick little pause in the podcast to share with you some exciting news. My book, A Little Less of a Hot Mess, The Modern Mom's Guide to Growth and Evolution is finally out in the world. You can order it on Amazon or anywhere else you order books. You can also pop into your local bookstore and request a copy if they don't carry the book. I can't wait to hear what you think about it. It really is an incredible resource that I put together in hopes to empower you to care for your mental health by learning to say yes to you and claim your identity as a mother and so much more. Okay, so I have given you guys the sort of professional intro of the authors of Dear White Women. We have Misasha and Sarah here with us, and I would love it if you guys would just kind of tell um, my listeners in your own words a little bit about who you are, your work in the world, and how you guys, I know this is a huge question, how you guys came to writing this beautiful and important book. So whoever wants to start, go ahead. I so appreciate the question. You know, I think that's a twofold answer, which I think is both sort of personal about our personalities and then real about what we've chosen in our lives. Misasha and I are both biracial. We're both Japanese and white, daughters of an immigrant parent each. And we met at a racial identity conversation 25 years ago. And so this question of who we are, belonging, identity, racial tensions, I mean, that's all stuff that we were raised in. And it's sort of in our bodies and issues that we've been grappling with our whole lives. But as we've been best friends, as you do over the years, right? You go from talking about the cute boys and the shoes, mostly Misasha gave me advice on fashion. Um, <laughs> and then fast forward to being married with kids and our conversations really took on a different level of intensity. Yeah, I'm married to a white guy, white Canadian man. My kids, my two girls are white presenting. And Misasha's married to a black man her kids are black, Japanese, and white, and the world sees them as black. Mm -hmm. And as you, as a mom, you know, you talk about your hopes, your dreams, and your fears for your kids. Her fears were very, very different. And so the work that we do, bringing each of our personal backgrounds to these conversations about race and racism are very, very personal to us from both of those, uh, you know, for, for all of those reasons. In terms of the two of us, the yin and the yang of this like duo partnership, I am a life coach. I love positive psychology. I am intrigued by what makes people tick and what makes people thrive. And that's the lens I bring to these conversations. Misasha is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. She's a lawyer. She is an amateur historian. Um, and she brings a lot of structure, analysis, and knowledge to the table, um, in addition to obviously having a really personal, deep connection. And her family is why I entered this conversation in the first place. That's so beautiful and so cool. Just so much in there that we can dive into. But, you know, the thing that really stands out to me the most, well, actually going back, didn't you guys, am I right? Because I had the pleasure of listening to you guys do your launch event in San Francisco. It was so wonderful for Dear White Women. And I remember you guys saying that you met in grad school. Is that right? Or you guys went to grad school together? Am I wrong on that? We were undergrads together undergrads. at Harvard. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. So obviously, like you said, it goes way, way back. And then the, you know, curiosity and the connection to the work started a long time ago, but just sounds like it's just grown as you guys have, you know, gotten into life more and raised families and um, all those things. So yeah, I mean, Sasha, I would love to kind of hear from you. Uh, I know Sarah just did such a beautiful job introducing herself and her connection to you. Tell us a little bit about, you know, about your connection to the work as well as the background that you bring in. Yeah, so it's hard to follow Sarah because um, no. she did do such a great intro. Um, well, just I defer to Sarah. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, as the granddaughter of a Civil War historian, right, I grew up um, not only really looking at my own race and identity and being told you know, you're not white enough or you're not Japanese enough to be in a certain space or be in a certain group and having for so long others try and tell me who I was, right? That I think naturally you start to really question not only all of those things, but you also start to form a really clear view of who you actually are. And that same grandfather who was a historian focused on personal narratives of the stories that weren't told. So I think a lot of my life has been thinking about whose voices do we hear and in what spaces, right? And so I think, therefore, the work that we do is really a natural offshoot of that. But, you know, as Sarah was talking about my family, and I think that there's nothing that sort of solidifies certain things for you is when you have kids, because they're sort of like, you know, your heart living outside of your body, right? As people say, and Sarah was talking about those hopes and dreams and fears for our kids and, and a fear that I have to this very day as we sit here in 2022, right, is that my boys will leave our house and not come back one day solely because of the color of their skin. And I think as a parent or someone who loves kids, right, our whole desire for kids is to keep them safe, right? I think we've spent two years really thinking about how to keep kids safe in a very tangible way um, when we think about the pandemic. Lack year of their life and beyond really, I guess, trying to keep them literally alive. Like I know yes. that sounds like, I mean, that, that is our like biological functional role. Like as parents is we're like, you know, it's already hard enough, right? <laughs> like that is already, there's so many things that can go wrong and happen. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's certain things that you can control, right? And there are certain things that I know, like the minute my boys walk out of our doors, they're not in my hands anymore. They're sort of in everyone else's. And I think at the same time that Sarah and I are having these discussions, we also were moving through a lot of spaces based on the fact that we are biracial and are able to float in white spaces, right? Without people necessarily changing their conversations because they perceive that a person of color is in the space. And so we were, we have been very fortunate, I think, to be, to hear what's being said in those spaces and what's not being said in those spaces. And sometimes to not have, you know, that conversation censored because of who they perceive we are. Yeah. And so we, re we recognize that those fears that I had for my kids were not being reflected in those spaces. And so mm -hmm. we thought, what if we could change the narrative in those spaces, right? What if we could, and not just in those spaces, but really that narrative that we've been fed as a dominant narrative in American culture and American history throughout, you know, our schooling and, you know, what the media tells us and what we start to really ingrain in our lives. And so that's really where the Dear White Woman podcast came from originally, right, which we started back in April of 2019. It was really meant to, you know, help white women 
use their privilege to uproot systemic racism because we recognize that women are a group we know really well being women. And we also know that power that women have, right? That, that in so many spheres of life, that's often devalued, undervalued, or told that it doesn't exist, right? But in school, in home, in work, in book clubs, in social circles, like in, through wallet power, right? Women have so much power. And especially white women in this country have the ability to have their voices heard in spaces where other voices are not heard. And so we thought, this is the group. Like, we know this group. Like, I, I have a white mom, right? I know this group so well that what if we could harness the power that we know this group has and really put that power towards changing the world, our country, so that we can have a better future for those kids that we so want to keep safe, right? All kids. And so... We recognized, though, however, that not everyone is a podcast listener. And so in order to keep this message going and spreading, like that, you know, it was sort of a natural step to write the book, although the time that we wrote it was not a natural time to write the book because it was a very compressed period in 2020 between the presidential elections in 2020 and the January 6th insurrection, really, was when we wrote that book. I can't imagine writing this book at a different time now because of what's in the book and how how we frame that. Right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The fact that you started the podcast in 2019 and then wrote the book in 2020 and like here it is, it's out and it's in the world. Like what what a what an accomplishment, what a short timeline. But like you said, such an important message and such an important time to write the book. I want to go back to what you said, Sasha, about this idea of targeting white women as the group to really start these conversations or really inform the conversations in a better way around how to be anti-racist, because that's really what this is all about, right? And I think that what I love personally so much about the book is as a white woman myself, as someone of privilege, I have been around so many of these conversations, like these myths that you talk about in the book, like um, the first one that I'm going to pop open right here, because it is probably embarrassingly the most common one I hear, which is, I don't, like, I'm not racist. I don't have privilege, right? I hear that a lot from men. And I think this is, this is solely my honest opinion. I think that because of the way our, you know, our patriarchal system is set up that a lot of women, which is, is, is not okay, have just kind of been handed down these beliefs about, about racism from men in a lot of ways. And so I think it's just, it's, it's our time to challenge that and ask the questions and just focus on what we can do um, and what we know to be true outside of that perspective. So, you know, when, when we hear women or men say, I don't have privilege. Like I had a hard life too, for instance, or I'm not racist. Like either one of you can answer like what you say in the book is so incredible, but what do you say about that? And how do you guide people through that, that kind of like changing that perspective because it's not true. I think one of the biggest things to do is remind people that it's, we're not, is remind people of a couple of things. One is that when we talk about white privilege, we're not talking specifically about whether you grew up rich or poor, right? We're not talking about wealth or anything else. We're talking about the fact that you weren't denied opportunities or afraid because of the color of your skin. And I think the second thing is to remember that we're not talking also like, yes, people work hard, right? You can have white privilege and work really, really hard to get where you're at. 
And what we're saying is that there are systems in place that mean that people, other people who work just as hard as you do, do not get the same rewards that you do based on the systems of oppression that are in place. And we can point to so many different examples of the banking system, the GI, but like there are just so many things that we can unpack in our nation's history mm -hmm. to show you and illustrate that that's that it, that it does exist. But I think, you know, it's not, we're not trying to make anybody feel bad. Mm. We're stating that there are systems in place that do not penalize white people for being white. And I think that's, first of all, it's so, but, but I think it starts with being able to say, I'm white. We have to yeah. remember that white is a race. Yes. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, do you think this speaks to that, that concept of white fragility of like, I am like, I'm not wrong. I'm not, or like, I like that sort of like feeling attacked and getting really defensive. It certainly seems like it does to me, this sense of like, well, you know, a lot of us, well, most all of us were raised in that, like that unhelpful um, belief around color, like don't see color, don't acknowledge color. I know you guys talked about this a lot in the book and in the talk I heard you guys present, but it's like, we were taught to be colorblind and be kind and blah, 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 right? None of that stuff is helpful, turns out. All that does is deny the truth and the reality is that we, that cultural diversity exists and it's important. In fact, I know I'm joking around, but Misasha, I remember something you said that stood out to me so much was that like denying color is actually denying my child's existence. Like how, you know, like we see their color. So saying color doesn't exist is saying in a way, like in a very messed up way that they don't exist. And so that stood out to me so much as like, yes, we need to see color. Yes, we need to start with saying we are white. And, and kind of just at least be able to start there. That seems like such a practical, reasonable place to start, right? I'm curious actually along those lines, and first of all, Caitlin, you're so cool for having shown up at our book event in San Francisco. I'm so <laughs> yeah, glad that so you, so you made the effort to come on down. So thank you for that. You know, I remember hearing, and this is anecdotal, so I'm curious if you found this to be the case that when, you know, we do some work on intersectionality, which starts with identity and really writing down things about who we are. and I have heard that when people are asked this in a, in a diverse room of people say, people who are in more dominant categories tend to look at individual characteristics about themselves. I am an introvert. I like to read, I, you know, they look at their own lives. Whereas people who are in more minoritized populations will say I am black or I, you know, like more systematic, bigger, obvious labels because they have to fight so hard to justify the existence of that identity. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that that rings true. I don't ever hear white women or white men start out with saying, like, I am a white man, I am a white woman, I am, you know, you know, even beyond that, like even talking about like their their community or their spirituality, like that usually it's like, I am a lawyer or I am a this and I, you know, it all has to do with like their actual role. So that's, that's a really good, a really good point. So coming back to this idea of helping people understand that privilege, that, that it's not a personal attack, that it's just the truth, right? What did you guys see in the conversations that you said you kind of being a part of these circles of white women through schools and just like life, what did you guys see? Did that echo, I guess? Did you hear a lot of those kind of comments about like 
that individual perspective of, well, I'm not racist or I don't have privilege. Like, did that, does that ring true for you guys as well? Yes. Yeah. In a short answer. Yes. I think that is, it's really common because I think, you know, it's, it's sort of the focus on the individual versus the systems and what do words really mean? I think words and definitions of words really matter too. And so I think that a lot of times we, I think critical race theory is a great example, right? Right now, like a lot of the debates around that, which are sort of centered on people not really knowing what critical race theory is or how it would be applied in like a K through 12 educational setting. Um, I think people are afraid of concepts that they don't really know what that means, but it sort of feels nebulously negative for them personally. And I think to Sarah's point, it really is There are huge systems in place that have been in place since the start of our country's founding, really, that exist to this day that are what we are trying to to show people. Right. So that that, yes, like the fact that you're let's say your grandfather was a gigantic racist, right, a very open racist doesn't necessarily, you know, I think a lot of people feel like I had this racist ancestor, but I'm so different now. But I think we, the, what we need to understand is we are all still living in those systems that continue to perpetuate racism, right? We are right. still in a place where in 2022, black people have been denied mortgages 84% more than white people, right? We, we are still seeing the effects of what has been put in place a long time ago. And so I think the question that we also really focus on is, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Because yes, we need to understand history so that it does not re- continue to repeat in increasingly harmful ways. But I think when people get really defensive, they sort of sort of throw up their hands, say, this doesn't apply to me um, and just shut down. And I think that we have to also acknowledge that that is a privileged view as well, right? If you're not in our house, we have conversations about race regularly because it's about survival. Yeah. And I think what I've heard a fair amount now is I don't want to have those conversations with my white child because I'm afraid that's going to traumatize them. And, I hear that. I right? Hear that. And, and I think and... that I understand that feeling, but I... I also would prefer to not have those conversations with my black and, you know, Japanese kids to not traumatize them. But I I think we are all in this together. We all have the need to have those conversations and they are going to be uncomfortable. So we should just not be looking for the comfort in this, but be looking for where do we want to go from here and how can we collectively get there? Because we're not, if only part of us get there, we're not there, right? Like I think we are seeing that now only part of us are doing well, and then we're collectively not doing well as a result. That's so true. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I just, my brain is like bouncing around because there's so much, (laughs) there's so much here. But what I, what I really love too, is this idea of, or what I think is valuable is let's pull back from make like the issue at hand isn't whether or not, well, this is one issue is whether or not you are personally racist, like whether you're doing and saying things that, that aren't anti-racist, right? But the, but the, another big issue or the biggest issue is the collective racism, right? The, the systems. And so maybe for people who struggle to identify with the fact that, that who are like, I'm not racist, if they could at least see the systems, right? These like very, these facts that you put in the book, like what you said about mortgages and the fact that um, the story about, um, you know, uh, in the book about a black man preparing to go for a jog versus a white man preparing to go for a jog. The, the way that 
they had to do that so differently or the conversations you have to have Misasha, with your with your boys like that is undeniable right and so i think if we can look at that um and understand that that's a really good place to start totally i, and I think it's also uh, important to remember along those lines that part of this guilt that i feel people have is because they don't know those facts and they feel like they're supposed to have known it. But our education system has failed us in this nation because it's history is not taught evenly throughout the country. You know, I think, um, I mean, Sasha, I just forgot the state, but there was a state in the South that mentioned slavery, I think like three or four times in its te textbooks and its curriculum. And then in Massachusetts, it was mentioned over a hundred times. Wow. And so it's very different what we're learning and what we've grown up with. So I want people to understand that it's okay to start where you're at right now. Mm -hmm. And there are so many resources out there to help you start to learn all of this history. Because if you wanna start by learning the systems, it is really helpful to understand the history that have gone into the systems that are, are continuing to exist today. Cause then you can see where you fit into that yourself. Absolutely. And I think that that's what makes you guys so wonderful and the book so important and is that I, I have to be there's just a lot of fear there's a lot of fear and and we've talked about this before offline is there's a lot of fear around saying the wrong thing doing the wrong thing right that's that fragility right and 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 so I think so often we decide not to talk about it or not address it because it's just uncomfortable and from what I know about psychology in general and you know is that we avoid things that are uncomfortable that <laughs> makes sense right we don't want to go there it's hard you know and the truth is is the other important truth is that we can't get better we can't improve we can't change unless we sit with the discomfort and and then do something about it so I think both those things are true it reminds me just this last week you know um martin luther king day my my both my six and seven year old came home with like these packets and they had done all these assignments about it and me and my husband were going over it and he's like wow it's amazing what they learned so young he's like i mean mia my daughter just wrote like the the day he was shot in the year and she wrote she wrote down like the character traits that made him such a good person or leader. And one of them said, hard worker. He got in jail 29 times. <laughs> and we were like, oh my gosh, that is such a cool perspective. And my husband was, we, we just made us reflect on the fact that we don't, we don't remember learning this at six or seven. And maybe, maybe we did and we forget. I just think that it speaks to what you said about how different education is in different places. And I'm hoping that I that we start integrating it more at younger ages. And I think that my child is already far ahead of where I was at her age and what I understood. Are you guys seeing that? I guess that's my question. Are you guys seeing that in reflected back in, in kind of where you are in the world, that these conversations are happening earlier or in a way that's, that's more accurate or no? Am I totally wrong and naive to that fact? <laughs> you tell me. I mean, my kids are in the public school system and I I'm really happy with the schools that they are each in. You know, they learned the real history of Thanksgiving. Um, the other one, I think, and I think all of these are, are tied in together. You know, this other school, this middle school had kids introducing themselves and their pronouns. Like it's, they're, they're yeah. really thinking broadly and kids are sponges and they're soaking it up. But I would bet a lot of money that the schools that are outside the city that I'm in, you know, more rural areas or, or sort of different states, they may not be being taught in this way. And so I think that's the, the difference is as parents, um, it's important for us to understand what our kids are being taught or not being taught and decide how we wanna help 
um, partner with a school and take part in perhaps widening the scope of conversations that are happening there so that all kids can benefit. I think also, you know, and those conversations do come up early, right? Because I, I think I tell the story in the book, or maybe I was talking about it in, on the book talks, you know, the National Origins Project that my son had in second grade, my older son, and, and you know, how for a black child, right, growing up in America, when you're asked your countries of origin, like he's got Japanese, Scottish, and English on my side, but, you know, he he can't say anything past Africa because we don't have a record of his countries of national origin from my husband's side because of slavery. And so this is in second grade, right? And this is a conversation that we then had with the teacher to say like, look, he's going to say slavery because this is, you know, we talk about this in the family. He is proud of his heritage and we want to do this in a second grade appropriate way, but also in a way that shows the other kids like that we can talk about this, right? This is part of our history. So there are examples throughout the school year that come fast, right? And I also think that it is great that we do have these months, right, to commemorate, you know, certain parts of history. But I do think that we still, and, and the fact that as we're recording this, you've got entire school districts who are challenging, you know, what's being taught and are, you know, trying to make white people not feel uncomfortable talking about racism, like our own country's history, right? When it has been such a discomfort for pretty much everyone who's not white. And right. I think the more that we continue to sort of say, well, this is, you know, February is Black History Month and, you know, March is Women's History Month right. and May is, you know, and we, we can keep going, you, you right? Right, yeah. but yeah. it continues to say that these are other than the American history, right? And yeah. so I, I think the That's more that we can, you know, talk about, you know, black people all the school year, right? And like talk about black history, which is American history, our, our Asian American history, which is American history. You know, I think recently that Maya Angelou comment, right? Where it's like only white people are allowed to say American, everyone else is a, is a hyphenated mm. version of that, right? Mm -hmm. And I paraphrase that terribly, but I think that we, we have come so far, but we have so much more to go more to go so i think that there has been a problem sort of with complacency and people feeling like yeah we're good we you know we we have these months we talk about things um or like uh this kills me and i'm probably and i'm and i will just say like i'm i'm guilty of this right um in the sense of like i feel like the whole like that you know i was super passionate about the anti-racism work about understanding more and learning more after the death of George Floyd and it just really opened my eyes to things that I'd already known were there but just weren't so in my face because I am a white woman in the world, right? I, I don't move through the world always aware. And so I have seen a decline in that, like on social media and in, in the conversations just in real life about racism. It's disturbing. It's not a it's not a good thing. I don't know. I I, I think it's sad. I was saying before that it seems like something has to happen in order for people to start talking about it again. What do you have to say about that, either of you? And also, what can we do <laughs> to change that? And I think you're going to say it starts with us individually. And, and I hear you on that. <laughs> you know, I think you're right in that it's also a really hard time. I get it in society with two years of the pandemic and people are tired. There's been a lot of other um, issues also coming up in people's lives we've gotten to the point where small boutiques are like, we're not seeing our anti-racism books selling, right? In, the, in these white neighborhoods. So this is a trend 
But what I am hoping people understand is that if you're white and you're like, yeah, it fell out of my radar, for people of color, it has never fallen off their radar, right? They're still living the same fears, the same structural inequities, the same pressures that they've always lived. And so if people are finding that, wow, life's pretty hard, and I, I don't want to talk about racism, or I, I just, you know, it's not on my radar, there's a very large population of this country that does not feel the way you do. And therefore, again, let's go back to that conversation we started with about privilege. It's important for, for you to be aware that if there are people in this country struggling in this way, you know, we need to all be in it together in order to change these systems. And what I'm really hoping people can understand is increasingly, if, if people are, are struggling right now, what do they do? They sort of start introspecting. They, if they have the, the, the financial privilege to take the time to slow down and, and look at their lives and get therapy and get support, you're looking at what would make me happier? Who am I? What are my priorities? What are my values? This is one of those things. Who am I? unpacking your identity and how you show up in the world and what values you have is very much linked to this conversation around race. Your race is part of who you are. And I think if we don't spend some time understanding and accepting what your stereotypes are of the race that you are, for example, you're missing a really large part of the conversation. You're not doing yourself a service and looking at your whole identity if you aren't adding that layer. And so what I'm hoping people understand is that Addressing race and racism isn't this separate silo. It's not a different thing that you have to tack on to your to-do list. It is an integral part of you rediscovering who you are, how you show up in the world, and how the systems are working that are either keeping you happy or, or not so happy. And, and I want to breathe for a second there because yeah. that was a yeah. lot. But, but I think yeah. I want to add, you know, when you said earlier, for example, this idea that people don't want to make a mistake, you don't want to, you, you call that fragility. I also think part of that is this perfectionism mm, that we yeah. have been absorbing 100%, because yeah. of this idea of we need to dehumanize ourselves, right? There is no perfect. We are okay being people and human. And the more we understand that we are people and therefore not perfect, that is also going to deconstruct some of this idea of this white supremacy, this pressure of perfectionism, this idea of dehumanizing the other. And so it's a good practice that working on accepting your own humanity is going to help you accept other people's humanity. Mm, that's so true. That perfectionism really rings true, especially I think for white women and uh, is this idea of like, I have to be, I mean, I think for all women mostly, but I think just this idea of like, I have to be presenting a certain way. I have to seem like I know what I'm doing. So then maybe if I just don't talk about it or address it, it'll go away or I won't look stupid or uh, like I don't care. And so that's a really good point. Maybe perfectionism is a better way to say that. I, I Coming back, I know to, we have to wrap up in a couple of minutes. I want to be respectful of your guys' time. You've been so amazing to be on. I really love that you guys in the book start with um, well, there's a lot of things you can fill out in the book, a lot of exercises. And a lot of where I start with my therapy clients is kind of is determining their why, like, what are your values? And you just spoke to this, that, that, that bring you to this work. And so, um, on the beginning of the book, you say, um, what made you pick up this book? What do you know? Who's affected? Why do you give a hoot about anti-racist work? Write it down. You can do it in a pencil if you want, and you can do it right here. Um, I like that you said you can do it in a pencil if you want, because it's like that might change, right? Um, or that might evolve as you read the book. But what I wrote down is because I want to understand it better so I can be a better advocate for anti-racism and teach my kids the same. 
And that's what I wrote down months ago. Um, and that's kind of just where I'm starting is just with this curiosity because of being fully honest of not understanding other than, you know, when I went to grad school was probably the most understanding and learning I did about cultural diversity and racism. Before that, it just, I really was raised in a colorblind, quote unquote, right, sort of way. So um, it's been a journey for me. It's still a journey. And yeah, I'm just so appreciative of, of your work in the world. Um, I want to give you guys a chance to say anything else that you feel like might be helpful for our listeners who are mostly like me, mostly white women, let's be real, who listen to this podcast. Um, that might be helpful. Um, obviously, they need to pick up the book, but to kind of really stay in the work and some really tangible places they can start being uh, more involved in anti-racism work. So I want to offer a little pep talk, um, which is kind of out of character for me as Sarah's like, what is going on here right now? (laughs) Um, You know, I was thinking because I was listening to another COVID related podcast, right? And I was thinking like, however, over the past two years, we have basically all sort of gotten PhDs in um, infectious disease and like really learning and making very intentional choices, right? Over two years about how our kids are going to stay safe, how we're going to stay safe. Um, so I have a lot of faith in people being able to do really hard things, right? And hard things intentionally over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, that, you know, people have referred to racism as a pandemic. And I think it, it is endemic, right? It is similarly baked into all of those systems that we talked about. And I feel like in the COVID pandemic, there has been so much questioning of why, right? Like, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why don't we do this? You know, and um, I would encourage people to keep asking that question, but ask it in different spheres, right? Ask, why are my kids learning about this just one month of the year? Ask, why does my book club only read books by white authors? ask like why, you know, when we go, the moms in our school go out for coffee, why they're only white moms mm-hmm. in, in the group that we're going to, like, why do, why are the people that we're inviting over to our house, let's say in a non, you know, Omicron world, um, are white, right? And I think like we can continue to be as introspective and inquisitive and to, Caitlin, to your point, curious, right, about how this impacts our lives and the choices that we intentionally make as a result of asking that question, um, as we have been very deliberately over these past two years. Like, I I firmly believe, I know people are tired, but we can do really hard things. And I 100% believe women can do really, really hard things. And this is hard, no doubt. But we can do this because we are going to do this for a better future for our kids. Oh my gosh, Sasha, that is going to be like, that's going to be the soundbite for this podcast. No, can you send me that clip? Because I like that one. (laughs) But it's so true. I love coming back to that. We we can do these hard things. We've been doing hard things. We've been, you know, getting getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. And so this needs to extend into anti-racism work. Yeah. Because anti-racism work isn't just about other people. It affects all of us. Our identities affect all of us. And these pressures and these systems affect all of us, we are absolutely in it together. And so it's good to ask inquisitive questions, to, to be curious, to think critically, deconstruct perfectionism, which is one of these systems. You know, we, we can do all of these things for us yeah. and for everyone together. Yes, and have the conversations, talk to your schools. Like 
figure out what you can do within your sphere, right? Your community to, to make a difference or to change and to use your power. Use like that is absolutely, I think the point, right? Is that we can use our power in, in a really positive way if we're willing to get uncomfortable, right? And so um, I love that. The women are incredibly powerful. Women can do hard things. Uh, I think that's such a great message. So we'll end on that note, but I first wanna ask, um, tell us where people can find you and follow your work um, and, and buy the book and things like that. Yeah, thank you. You know, all of our information is always lodged on our website, dearwhitewomen.com. Um, we have two social media places that we lean into, Twitter at DWW Podcast and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're really working to bring this book to organizations, schools, companies. And so you can buy the book anywhere you like to buy books. Um, we would love Amazon reviews. But yes, everyone leave an Amazon review. That is huge as I'm learning as a, as a new <laughs> author. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think we are really enjoying the types of conversations and workshops when we start interacting with people about how we can be heart-led, intentional, and deliberate with this work in our own spheres of influence. So let us know um, at hello at dearwhitewomen.com if, if that's of interest. And again, also podcasts, anywhere you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. So we are out there. You can reach us for sure. And we are accessible, normal human beings. And we'd love to, to talk to all of you. Yes, I love it. Thank you so much for being on. You guys are wonderful. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks so much for Thank having us. Thank you. Thanks. Loves. Just a quick note to thank you again for listening to this podcast and for all of your support. Some further ways you can support me in this work and being able to continue to produce this podcast are by leaving my podcast a review on Apple Podcasts. Believe it or not, that matters. Having better reviews and more ratings helps me continue to get the high quality guests that I want to be able to get for this podcast. Also, if you haven't already, grab a copy of A Little Less of a Hot Mess. You can do that on Amazon or anywhere you buy books. You can also go to your local bookstore or library and request that they order a copy. Lastly, I want to leave you with this. By sharing about this podcast in the book and having brave conversations about mental health and motherhood, we are changing the future, not just for ourselves, but for our children. And that's pretty freaking awesome. Cheers. Thank you.